Welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. We've just come back from uh, Seeing You Were Never Really Here uh, by Lynn Ramsey. We just note with interest, one of the things that kind of struck from the beginning is that it's a film that's made by Amazon Pictures, isn't it? Amazon Studios, yeah. Yes. Um, it's not the first film we've seen by them. Well, maybe, I don't know if it's the first on the podcast. I can't remember another one. Uh, well, Manchester by the Sea. Ah, right, them. okay, yes. Um, they've made a couple of others, I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, because there's an interesting thing going on between Amazon and Netflix are these two huge new um, production sort of studios um, making movies, and they they have these huge internet platforms. Platforms, yeah. And, um, and the kind of central difference between them is that Amazon respects the idea that there's a theatrical window like the old days, yes. where a film is shown there first and then is made available to home media after that, a few months down the line, and Netflix has no interest in that, really. Yes. Netflix will release a film to cinemas if it thinks there's a bit of interest, Yes. but it's not really asked. And I'm, I was thinking particularly about this film, this film Annihilation, that's coming out. It's, it's out in the States at the moment. It's Alex Garland's new film, The Guy Made Ex Machina. Mm. And it's, everyone adores this thing. And it's not seeing cinema here, right? as far as I know. Maybe it'll get a, a very tiny run. Yes. I don't know. But it, it's going straight to Netflix here. Well, my understanding is that the run for You Were Never Really Here is also quite a small run. Right. I well, I don't, that wouldn't surprise me because it's a kind of small art movie, but, mm. but I, I don't think that's out of the ordinary for Amazon Studios. Right. Well, my point really, the reason why I wanted to discuss it is that if there's ever a movie that needs to be seen in a big screen, mm. this is one of them. Yeah. You know, um, because it's quite a difficult watch, right? It's a very poetic film, but it's like, you know, the power of those, of those just images and sounds, actually, uh, and certainly Joaquin Phoenix's face. You know, kind of, you need a big screen to kind of absorb what is being conveyed through it. I think. Yeah, and it's a it's a story really being told visually. There's there's a huge stretch of the film where there's absolutely no dialogue. Yes. Um, and it's not it's not as a kind of experiment like the artist was. It's it's just the way the story is being told doesn't require dialogue, yes. and it can be told through visuals. Like for instance, uh, obviously we're going to get into spoiler territory. The basic idea is that um, Joaquin Phoenix is a hitman uh, who is tasked with saving a sort of 11, 12-year-old girl from sex trafficking. And a, a small sort of conspiracy is, is kind of uncovered. And basically, it, it's like... It's, it's about 80 minutes long, I think. Yeah. And it's like a very, very long, short movie. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it, it has a kind of a simple structure. Yes. Um, so he, it, it's, it's a kind of really compressed, almost sort of revenge film. Yes. But... In amongst everything, you get these these kind of... The, the film has a kind of psychologically traumatised editing pattern mm. to it, where his past flashes into his mind and, and flashes into the film at certain points, and you see these things, these, these, these things of... These traumas that he's experienced of abuse as a child by his dad, mm. um, and these uh, girls in a, in a truck that he wasn't able to save once, and his time as a soldier where he, where he saw a child die... Um, I mean, this child uh, abuse is a running thread throughout everything. Yes. Um, but it's all told you told through the editing, right? And it kind of flashes in and comes really quickly. And you don't need. It's a film that requires visual literacy. Yes. To understand, you know. Yes. And and oral literacy yes. actually, because I think I particularly at the beginning, it's like you you know you're hearing all of these things without quite seeing anything yet. Right, and kind of the way that the sound weaves into the first images is, you know, and, and to contrast that with, you know, that uh, 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 I'm going to bake you a cake up light song, mm. you know, that ends the film is really interesting. You could see, also see how much, how much work the sound does in this film. And I don't just mean the soundtrack, really, you know, but kind of the uses of sounds. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful film in that, in that way, really. Yeah. Um, it's a film that exhibits so much technical knowledge and skill and creativity in a way that seems almost experimental just because it's so clear, right? It's so on the surface that this is the kind of 
the way it kind of foregrounds everything. So like I was trying to avoid the word superficial because it's not superficial, mm. but it, it's it's on the surface. You know what I mean? Like mm. it's not hiding sort of its um, technique. You see what I mean? Um, I think it's a film that seems to me almost kind of I don't know pregnant with grief or something like the the grief invades every aspect of this world that we're presented mm. you know um and i'm not sure if it's like grief or remorse or just sadness but you know that that seems to be the areas or those seem to be the areas in which kind of the film is working on and on the other hand kind of you know there's this presentation of the result of truly extraordinary events and then the presentation of it as well as if so quotidian, so everyday life, so actually like almost working class life, right? You know, the relationship uh, between the Joaquin Phoenix character and his mother, you know, the neighbors and the neighbor's kids. And yeah, kind of all of that has almost a touch of like, mm. I don't know, it's in a realist vein or something like it evokes a, a world, doesn't it? Mm. A recognizable world. Um, and yet it's all kind of infused <laughs> with a kind of poetry, you know? It's like if John Wick was set in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well I think I think when you say about grief, I think to me what it really is is trauma that pervades the entire thing, which obviously has a relationship with grief. But um, it's about it, it's about abuse and people's kind of kind of coping with that, or the way they're unable to cope with it. Um, yes, is what kind of pervades the film for me. Well, yes, and and that's and that's to say, I mean, really, it's it's fundamentally really about whacking phoenix's character it's all about him really yes i must say you know like it initially didn't make sense to me because what happens is the story is told through these flashes right you know so kind of you see a young boy but actually i didn't realize that it was him at the initially mm. kind of you know and then as the film unfolds you begin yeah yeah kind more of, details emerge you get more you details get accumulate a slightly clearer picture that's right you know, so and was it Samantha Morton playing the young mother, or was it just me? Uh, oh, I don't know. Um, um, Kate Easton, right? Okay, the young mother. Anyway, so kind of all of those things didn't initially make sense to me. Like, you know, the story is actually told in quite a fragmented way. So, you know, on the one hand, it's linear, and actually, the linear aspect is almost like you could transpose it into a kind of a conventional hitman film, really. You know. Mm. Um, but the way of telling it is is it, it lends all this depth and poetry and sadness, right? I mean, I, you know, I have never, I've never seen like a, a hitman movie, which is you know on the one hand kind of full of grime, like you know, so so the tools, you know, for for committing the killings are quite basic. They're hammers and things like that. It's right? just a hammer. It's just a hammer, basically. On the other hand, you almost don't see that violence, right? So a lot of the way that the violence is filmed is, you know, through a surveillance camera in which actually it has a corner that you don't see and that's, you know, where, you know, the hammer is hit on the head or whatever. So actually it avoids, it, 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 it renders the violence meaningful in a way because, you know, I'm somebody who really likes violent movies, but part of the pleasure of watching those violent movies is that they're cartoony, right? They're like, you know, you, you mm -hmm. in no way take that, you know, as a real thing. Yeah. But actually in this film, you, you kind of do, yeah? Yeah, well, so there's the one thing which you think about where he, uh, he infiltrates the house where these girls are being kept and, and abused. Um, and that's... Uh, like about half of that scene is shown through the security cameras and there's again like a light song playing over the top of that which is you suppose sort of the song playing in uh, yes, the surveillance room yes I guess um, or like playing in the house um, and you don't hear any other sound so so you see from a distance uh, these kind of violent attacks or, or they're cut away from very quickly or they're around a corner like you say you don't really see things and then later on you get to this house where like, the, he's basically tracked the girl to and tracked the kind of evildoers to and again it, it has this kind of John Wick thing of like this in, in John Wick this would be a symphony of violence yes and in this it's you see these static shots of empty rooms. You get a kind of picture of the house. You get the lobby and you get the kitchen and you get the stairs and these shots are empty and then it cuts back to it and there's just a dead body there and you see Joaquin Phoenix walking off and you don't see the violence. You see the aftermath of everything. And I think that contributes to, I think, that feeling of grief that you were talking about. Yes. You, know, you see the aftermath. 
there's very little interest in in the killing itself. And though the, the killing is shown briefly once or twice, but that it becomes important when it is. Yes, um, I mean, I think you know, like your use of the word symphony. I mean, I think that would have been a balletic set piece in a John Wick film, mm-hmm. and I would have loved it. But this is a completely different kind of film. It's almost like kind of, you know, what's at stake here is, in a way, the feeling. And I think Lynn Ramsey shows you this hitman, you know, in a kind of, um, yeah, in a quotidian way, living like this low, you know, middle class or working class milieu, taking care of his mother, washing up after her. Right. And, you know, then going to a drugstore to buy the few tools he needs, mm. you know, to kind of do a killing and get paid for it. Right. Uh, um, so and but I but I think you're right that kind of what unites the narrative throughout is really it's child abuse. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there's also it's also clear that he is suffering from some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's extremely clear, I think. And also he has a pill problem. He goes, ah, he goes right. to get pills illegally from a guy, so it's clear that it's it's off prescription as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He's he's got a, I guess it's it's antidepressants or it's pain. Uh, you don't see what the pills are, but it's like Vicodin or or Valium or something like that. Yes. Um, there was something about the editing at the beginning, you know, like just kind of these shots that I think it's going over some bridge, and you know, you see the New York skyline, right? And there was just something about. The images, the way they're, they're, they were edited together, the speed of them, that already evoked a kind of sadness. And this, yeah, and this... Well, to me, they evoke more of a kind of uh, mental fragility, like like an inability to comprehend, to cope with the, the world around. He's, he lives in New York as well, which is a mental city, mm. a city that never sleeps and so on. Um, and so if you're already in a kind of fragile state mentally, if you come back from the Gulf War and you've seen these, these tragedies and you've been through tragedy as a child yourself, um, you think that you could probably use a more calming environment than the centre of New York. Yes. Um, the film returns to that, though, because you get those images, like, several times, and they're edited in slightly different ways, right? Mm. Um, so, but this image of crossing the bridge, you know, through the iron grid and the city behind it, and sometimes just, yeah, not being able to see and then certain things coming into view, but, hmm. you know, all kind of slightly disjointed. Uh, it's kind of, uh, um, I don't know, a trope that the film returns to. Yeah, you see that kind of every time he goes through the bridge. And actually, I imagine that it's kind of used slightly differently in each sequence. I wouldn't, one certainly feels it, though I wouldn't at this point be able to tell out what exactly that difference yeah, is. Yeah, I'd have to see it again. You'd have um, to see it again. Um, I think just briefly returning to the idea of, of PTSD, which is something I wanted to say, which was um, so you were talking about it being kind of quotidian the way he lives, and I think actually that was one of the things that's really interesting is he lives with his mother, who is old and frail and kind of skeletal, mm. and has this kind of shock of, of uh, white hair that hangs down, and um, and the moment I see her in this in this kind of slightly dilapidated, cheap. Uh, sort of uh, apartment or house. Um, I'm thinking, all right, this is this is psycho. <laughs> She's in an armchair, and, he's, and then and then she says, "I'm watching Psycho on TV." And the film kind of diffuses that and brings it up and makes yes. a joke of it, and says, "And she says, I'm watching Psycho." And then he imitates, like, and, yeah. they, and they laugh about it. Um, and I think it kind of says, like, well, I suppose at that point in the film, because this is right at the beginning, you don't really know if he's going to turn out to be actually a, a sort yeah. of mental psycho, um, but. Uh, as it turns out, you kind of realise he is a normal guy, right? Okay, he's a hitman, but he's a normal guy who has been traumatised into living a certain way and, and coping with the world a certain way. Um, and actually, he he's not a... Like, I think you might be expecting him to be a psychopath, and he's really not. Even though he's doing very unsavoury things with his life, mm. um, he kind of... He's living almost the best way he knows how. That's right. You know? And actually, I thought that was interesting. And two things, kind I mean, that's indicated to me, like, in several ways, really, you know. Um, and one of them is, you know, when he goes at the end and he finds that his mother has been murdered and he shoots, there's two people there, he shoots one and he begins, you get the sense that he's going to begin torturing the other. And then, you know, instead of torturing him, he gives him a pill, right? 
and the they hold hands, right, yeah, yeah? Uh, which actually kind of, you know, you have empathy, right, uh, in a moment like that, which is something that you wouldn't expect of something like that. So there is kind of love and empathy and just kind of trying to make do in a situation, trying to make a best of the situation that you're in, which is quite horrible. I mean, the thing that you said about the knife, I th it was a little bit more complex because then there's that scene where the mother is bathing and he's waiting for her to come out and he's playing with that knife, right? He's dropping it at his feet. He's and dropping it. Moving his foot just out of the way, just in time. Yeah, and you don't know what's what's coming with that, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so there is a moment that you thought, well, he might go psycho on his mom, mm. right? Um, so, so all of that I found kind of really interesting. And then there are thi there there are just images in this film that just stay with you, really. Well, well, we'll see if they'll stay with me, but you know, but that I just find they're so beautiful and kind of meaningful. There's, and actually, two of them have to do with hair. One is when he takes his mom's body to bury it, and the only way that he can at that moment, which is, you know, to throw it in a river. And it's like, as the plastic bag sinks into the river, you have her locks of hair just kind of, hmm. you know, swirling. Uh, and then there's the moment where he rescues the young girl, and she's got like this forelock, you know, that kind of... Yeah, there's you know, one that seems longer than the rest. Than the rest, and she's just like flicking it, right? Like, yeah. kind of, you know, which I thought was, was... And there's water in it, and it's dripping. Yeah, and it's dripping. You know, it's very beautiful, actually. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure how to pin a precise meaning on that, really. Probably doesn't have one, you know. But those are kind of images, like, kind of this beautiful young girl, kind of, you know, almost like focusing all her attention on, on her hair, maybe because she doesn't, she can't think about other things, you know. I thought that was, that was very beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, thinking about the girl, like, She, so she's interesting. She, she, she's she's the daughter of a governor, who has been kidnapped and um, made to work in in sex slavery. Um, and you get the impression, I think, Wacky Phoenix's character does kind of start to put this all together at one point in his head, or or do the best he can. Um, and I think the impression that you get that I got from from the kind of fragmented mm. things you, you're given by the film, the fragmented images, um, is that her dad deliberately sold, sold her, her into into sex slavery to win favour. Yeah, for with, political advantage. Yeah, for, for political advantage with with this governor who's higher up, and then because it all kicks off with this text that that guy receives that the dad receives with the address of where she's being kept and I think that kind of that's a, that's a, a pang of conscience mm. which you think is probably appropriate for his daughter mm. and that's when he says okay you need to go to this address and I want you to hurt them mm. because then the dad ends up getting killed yes well dying but then Wiking Phoenix suspects it's a murder because he was kind of going back on this mm. um, so so the, the girl is a victim the entire way through you don't really well, no, until the end. Yeah, I was going to say it's not fair to say you don't see anything else for, her, but because you do right at the end, and she kind of embraces this this freedom that she's been granted by Joaquin Phoenix, who's eventually managed to save, her, and she says it's a beautiful day. He, he, the ending is actually is fucking amazing. I think the ending is they're, they're sat in this diner, not sure what to do now that they've kind of he's managed to get her free, and he's got no mother anymore, and. No, no job. I suppose like he wants to get rid of that, um, and and the girl obviously is, is free of everything, and and then he has this violent suicidal fantasy of just shooting himself in the middle of the diner, and then very quickly realise he hasn't actually done that, and he's he's collapsed uh, into unconsciousness while having this this fantasy, and then the girl kind of kind of revives him, says wake up, wake up, and she says it's a beautiful day. It's mm. a beautiful day and the film ends. But I was thinking a little bit earlier where he goes to rescue the young girl and he sneaks into the governor's house or whatever he is, some, you know, somebody higher up than the father. Yeah. And he arrives only to find that the guy's throat has been slashed. Yeah. And then he goes to search for the girl and he finds her calmly eating a bloody breakfast, a breakfast with, you know, a utensil that's full of blood. And there's some indication that she did it. 
I think it's very clear that she did it. Who else in this? Well, who else in this house would have done it for one thing? Exactly. Um, Right. She's the she's the victim there, and everyone else is. Yeah, and she's calmly eating her her breakfast. Mm. Obviously, like you know, traumatized and so on, but no longer a victim, right? Like Mm. you know, somebody who's fought back. It's a very powerful image and situation, actually. I think just the you know just the image of the plate with the bloodied knife of that breakfast and her mm. eating calmly. So the situation is very powerful, but also the image is very powerful. And then he kind of, he finds her and he kind of, I can't remember that well, to be honest, but does he kind of comfort her? Or at least he kind of kneels by her. Yes. And he's glad that, that she's um, okay. But um, yeah, I, you get this kind of feeling of, he, he wishes that if only she hadn't had to, like she's gone through so much already, if only she hadn't had to go through another type of trauma yes. that like he could have taken that on for her yes you know? because the I mean which the is thing the job is... of adults adults are there to take on trauma for their kids basically yes I think well you know well that's that... why I mean with all the fucking school shooting stuff happening in America it's absolutely appalling that kids are being told this is how you save yourself from a madman with a gun yes and, and it might happen to you and it's like unfortunately it's true that it might happen to you that's the really sad part of it but but I think it's also true that like parents should take the responsibility of like this isn't going to happen to you. Mm. This is what I would tell my kid, I think. I would try to. Mm. This isn't going to happen to you. You will be fine because it's my job as a parent to have that burden. Yes. And then when you're a grown-up and you have kids, you take it on for your kids. But anyway, the world what... of this film is one where the parents abuse their children and cause them trauma or yeah. sell them. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, you know, because... Uh, and I think actually part of the narrative and part of, in a way, why it's so moving is... He rescues her only to deliver her to the man who sold her off in the first place, right? Mm. You know, so it's kind of... Um, yeah, unintentionally, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> unintentionally. But, yes, but right. that's the um, effect that the result of his actions are that he's delivered her to a worse place, possibly, than what she began with, really. You know, so... Or at least as bad a place. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah. Anyway, but that's the plot... I mean, but the film ends with a kind of success in that respect, right? They do manage to sort of win as best they can. Yeah, they yeah, defeat yeah. the people who, who, yeah. were, um, who were holding her no, and abusing her. It's a happy ending that the film offers us. Um, but what, what did you feel like throughout the film? What are, kind of, what, what, what are the dominant emotions that you remember and at which points? Um, hmm... It's. I don't want to say the film didn't make me feel, but I found it more intellectual than emotional for the most part. It was by the the very ending, um, as in the very like the last shot mm. was where I felt mm. kind of, or well, that was where I I almost felt like um. It was okay for me to feel something because up until then you really don't know what's going to happen and how long yes. it's going to be as well for one thing. Um, the film is is quite brief. Mm. It feels quite brief. I mean, it's it's a it's a feature film length, but it feels tight and brief. And so, um, it actually kind of, it's actually quite fast. I mean, I was thinking compared to to we need to talk about Kevin, which to me felt kind of ponderous. Mm. And and it's a little, it's about twenty minutes longer than this, so it's not a huge kind of excursion in length, mm. but it felt a lot slower and a lot longer than mm. this did. Um, and and so. You would never really hear kind of struck me as a personally as a kind of intellectual exercise for me to interpret it and understand it. Mm. Um, and and then right at the end when the credits roll and I, and I knew this was the end now, I kind of was started to process mm. everything that I'd just seen, which is not to say that like, like a film like Mother, for instance, mm. which was nuts and all over the place, and you thought you couldn't really keep up. It's not like that, mm. but it's um, it's it, it's Lynn Ramsey. You kind of you know there's a there's a, a, a kind of a demand on you as an audience member yes. to be interpreting it yes. because she's a, she's a really interesting, strong kind of visual storyteller, and it's just in a way that so many filmmakers aren't really. And she it, makes demands on you that you don't normally get. That's right. And so by the end, I kind of thought, now I can start to process everything. Yes. I mean, I think, I think there was a man that walked out, yeah? 
I think he came back. Oh, you're right, okay. Well, yeah, I noticed yeah. him as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I was thinking, if you've come to this movie to be entertained, right, kind of, this is not the movie for you, because it is a film that, that makes that makes quite a lot, a lot of demands. I mean, you're asked to kind of, you know, immerse yourself in this world and actually interpret these sounds and, and images and kind of, and actually, to a large extent, you're also asked to piece them together. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and like you said, initially it feels that it could be going in various directions. Like you don't exactly know kind of where it's going. It's not like one of those films where in the first five minutes you know the end, right? Like or you know mm. the story, right? Kind of this kind, you know, at the end it all makes sense. But until then, it could go in various directions, which, you know, I think in a way it's kind of fantastic storytelling. But it does require, you know, the viewer to kind of piece those things together in a way that is quite challenging, really. Um, what do you want to say about Joaquin Phoenix? I don't. I don't have words to describe his performance other than it was fucking brilliant. <laughs> like, I can't describe it, and it's for me. I thought. I thought he was absolutely great. And one of the things that I noticed is that whenever he's got a mission, you know, he's smart. He knows exactly what it's doing. He's calculated. His body moves freely, and he completes the actions efficiently and well. Right, it's almost like you know he's got freedom in those actions. All the other bits, it's like he's absolutely self-contained. You know, mm. it's like, uh, uh, and actually, I thought it was one of those things because you know he is communicating so much, but he's communicating so much by almost holding himself completely in. Right, like kind of, you know, there are moments where you're trying to read what he's feeling, and actually, all you can read is that he's holding it in. Right, mm. yeah. Um, but you know, then there were aspects of his body and his walk. I mean, I found his body like really interesting, you know, because it's like almost somebody who had, a, you know, who's done, who's done exercise, but who's let himself go. Right. Like, so, you know, he's still quite muscular, but it's not like a, it's underneath the layer of fat. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I found his beard like also kind of fascinating really, because you know, it is like, again, somebody who's let himself go. So it's all like bushy underneath where no one can see it, right? It hasn't been shaved off. Mm. So I kind of, you know, I think those are all kind of like really interesting moments where, you know, you get a sense of, 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 of pain, really. And of, you yeah, get the feeling that he's kind of hiding behind himself, don't you? Yeah. The kind of the, 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 the layer of chubbiness on mm. him. And he's really hiding within his own face, within, behind that beard and behind yes. that hair. Um, you, yeah, he, he's 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 hiding himself behind it, and then like he, there's a few points where he actually makes eye contact with someone, and it's actually quite important, right? Like right at the end, across that diner, he makes eye contact with the girl, and they they connect. Yes, and that's it's notable. It seems rare in the context of everything else in the film. Yes, I mean for me, those things are in a way tied together. So the thing about you know. The, the the guy who's who he shot reaching out his hand and kind of giving that moment of final comfort of human connection, you know, I thought that was kind of, you know, quite incredible and, and unique. I've never seen that before, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's a, it is a moment of empathy. And actually, I think the look with the girl at the end is so interesting because, you know, the moment that he rescues her, he looks... And it's almost like he doesn't know what to say. What can you say in a situation where a girl has been put through that, right? Like, you know, and I can't remember if there's any dialogue even, really. You know, so in contrast to the end where you do feel, okay, now, you know, a human connection has been made, right? And how important that is rather than, you know, this kind of self-contained living in your head because, like, the world, the outside was just so horrible, you know, Um and the only time that you see him kind of in other places having the, the thing that is almost like uniquely provided in those moments I'm describing is really the banter with his mom. Yeah, that you yeah. do get a sense of like yes. open, you know, uh, uh, openness and play and yeah. Yeah, well, they've obviously connected um, years and years ago over abuse by the dad because she was, she was abused as well. Yes. You see her in the flashbacks hiding under the bed. Yes. Um, so they, they, they share that between them and yes. that, I guess, kind of gives them... I mean, well, obviously they're, they're mother and son, right? So, like, they're, they're yeah. connected throughout. But also they're connected through something very specific that the film shows you. Yeah. Which is, which is the abuse by, by the dad. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about the soundtrack? Because you... 
Well, yeah, so uh, I noticed at the end that it's a uh, uh, soundtrack is by Johnny Greenwood. It's scored by Johnny Greenwood. Mm. I think there's also quite a lot of uh, pop music and found music in there mm. as well. Um, so I'd, I'd be interested to kind of basically... Just, I'd be interested to see the film again for the soundtrack and I'd be just interested to listen to the soundtrack. Um, I, I mentioned to you that Johnny Greenwood should have won the Oscar the other mm. day. Uh, he didn't because you know the academy. You put it more talks. eloquently instead of that pingy pongy. <laughs> shape yeah, of water. instead of fucking <laughs> shape of water, plinky plonky bullshit. Um, yeah, as opposed, you know, a, a, a delicate, interesting, rich score for the Phantom Thread. Um, well, I suppose it may. Then, then it just made me think like a film like this will never be seen anywhere near an Oscar. You know, yeah. and it's an absolute trap. Like that, I. I bet I bet that this film could well be in your in your top two or three by the end of the year. Oh, without a doubt, you know, you know and, and it'll never get anywhere near the Oscars. This, yeah, or in a way, I, I don't upstream color or that. that yeah, but I, but it one. doesn't matter because these are films that I think will be around for a really long time, and they'll be looked at and studied and discussed. You know, so okay. in, in a way that actually many Oscar films won't. Yeah, you know, so it doesn't matter. I, I know, mean, I know, but it's just one of those things, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the one thing is, in a way, or a concern of mine is, you know, I think these are films now, you know, that, and they're so great, but actually they do require a kind of visual literacy. You know, you've got to kind of pay attention, kind of, and try to piece things together and kind mm-hmm. of look and listen, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and then before you can piece it on in your own head. And actually my worry is that, you know, uh, 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 a mainstream audience no longer knows how to do that. I mean, you know, kind of, I, 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 in spite of seeing so many things, I don't think that a mainstream audience actually has the visual literacy to see a film like this. And they just won't, you know. Well, I think, um, I think that the thing about visual literacy is if you, if you compare it to, to literacy, just literacy, you know, as you're reading, yes. um, there's a kind of assumption, I think, or an unstated assumption that films are easy. Yes. And and films should be easy to watch. And if films aren't easy to watch, then they don't make sense. Yes, well I don't agree with that. And and if you compare that if you were to compare that to, to literature, then it's sort of like saying like all books are as easy to read as Harry Potter. And if you get if you come across something that's more challenging to actually literally to understand on the page yes. Um, with kind of longer sentences and more complex grammar and so on and so forth, um, then it's it's sort of the book's fault for not being easy to understand. Exactly. No one says that about a book, exactly. right? But so it's re- kind of the way we seem to think about movies. That's right. And I think it's wrong. Um, and, you know, kind of, this is a, a, a film that requires, you know, a high level of cinematic literacy. It's very, you know, it's kind of using the medium in all of these, you know, really fascinating ways, and almost in a kind of, I hesitate the word to use fullness, but in a varied, interesting, and complex way, right? Like kind of, mm. you know, it's making use of sights and sounds in various ways to communicate kind of particular meanings, really, and feelings, you know. Uh, uh, so, and I, and I just think actually that. Uh, you know, we grow up in a visual world, we have images everywhere, right? But just because, you know, we're surrounded by images doesn't actually mean that kind of we know how to understand them all. It could just mean that, you know, that we, we can understand the basics, like, you know, like reading the sun instead of reading Shakespeare. Well, it's the thing of like, when I, I went to university, um, I was taught by you doing film, and that was in... Uh, kind of early 2010s, 2007 to 2010 or so. And um, the attitude was very clearly sort of, what are you doing that for? You never get a job. Or, mm. blah, blah. And, that, and that's been the attitude of kind of media studies yes. uh, and, and similar disciplines for years and years and years. You know, this will never lead to anything. It's you, you're just mucking around at uni and so on. Um, and, and then like you look at a world in which there's fake news all over the shop and Donald Trump's in government... You go like, the people who we really need are the people who understand the kind of images that that have been kind of spread far and wide that have helped someone like Donald Trump yes. make his way into power it's like those, those people actually I'm not and this sounds in a way kind of high minded it's not meant to be that it's just meant to be a kind of that there is value in these things beyond you know whether you get a job or not and yes. um, these, well, these, are, these are things that you really need like for a full and varied society yeah. you need these things 
I mean, I also just kind of mention this because, you know, it seems to me that over the course of the year, like, you know, what I see as a no, just a kind of shocking kind of readings of films that I think actually, you know, indicate a lack of visual literacy. I'm thinking particularly, you know, in some of the reception uh, around Blade Runner 249 and things like that, um, you know, that to me kind of indicated that, you know, kind of people just... They might have seen the film, but they didn't understand it very well. And actually that that was related to mm. visual literacy. Anyway, just to get back to this film, yeah. you know, it's, it is one that makes demands on you, you know, and yeah. that you have to give yourself over to it. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it is a complex uh, uh, film. Um, but I think it's, it's a truly great film that will be discussed for a really long time. What I would say as well is the idea that it's a complex film that requires your attention and requires your... your uh, input to make sense of does not mean it's a film that's devoid of pleasure yes it's a film that has many many pleasures and not just of the kind of intellectual stuff but actually kind of it's a film which is really functionally um exciting at points like for instance when he's chasing down this car to the house that eventually is like the final house that he saves Mm. the girl from at the end he he follows this car and it's a it's Basically, it's the bit in the sort of it's the bit in the revenge movie where you approach the kind of centerpiece climactic uh, environment, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you get to this house and it's shown to you in this kind of and the soundtrack fits in. And, you know, you have this kind of planimetric big shot that shows the house right there. You go, oh, this is where the the set piece is going to be. Um, but that whole section is really functional in kind of the way it makes a, a chase exciting it's, yeah. just, it's following and following and following and it's and it's not done in a purely conventional way it's like the editing is kind of um uh it, it's 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 almost like sort of jump cuts along the road mm. as he's as he's following this car down one road then another then another but um but it, it's just it's exciting and it's tense and you kind of it's building up to something that's going to happen and it's yeah. a, and it's viscerally pleasurable mm. you know so even though it's a film that kind of it's not about luxuriating in violence and it's not about the excitement of of, of the fights mm. you know it, it deliberately achieves all of that mm. um, it, it it has great pleasures yes kind of visually and, 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 and it, through and the it, editing and so on yeah I mean for me a lot of those pleasures are are just like you know it's almost like the pleasures of poetry or something like that image of him sinking into the water in a suit but somehow illuminated or purified or something, is it, you know, accompanying his mom's body or something, and then mm-hmm. actually kind of the beauty of the hair swirling in the ocean, and you know, it kind of is. I found it so moving. It's also, it, it, you know, it somehow seemed to represent kind of, you know, what what that mother meant to him, like you know, the silver hair swirling beautifully, elegantly, yeah, but kind of sinking. I mean, you can't quite put your finger on, you know, this means this or something. Mm. Yeah, but kind of the connection between those two images is really kind of something extremely beautiful to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and then the mother turns into the girl. As he looks yes. down, the mother sinks away. He looks down and he expects to see his mother, I guess, but he sees the girl instead. Yes. And so there's this kind of connection of, like, that becomes mm. sort of... He sees the girl and underwater, swims back up to the surface... And then straight away he's striding off deliberately and, and forcefully. He's going towards the camera and the camera's tracking back. Mm. And it's like he's got his mission to mm. save the girl, you know. Mm. He's taking it upon himself now and it's like the death of his mother has kind of catalyzed that and mm. made that happen. What did you make of the sound at the very end, just the last shots? Because there's all these people, ch- they're chattering in the, in the mm. diner, aren't they? Yeah, about nothing in particular. It's yeah, just, it's about, just diner noise. You know, like, yeah, and it was almost like, oh, I shouldn't have sugar, and oh, you know, like, but this doesn't have much sugar. So it's almost like just normal life mm. is somehow. It's emphasizing the, there's a kind of these extraordinary things have happened in the world where everyone's just living their lives and yeah, have no idea. And worrying and, about sugar. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I thought that was also quite life wonderful. Life goes on. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, let's wrap up, kind of, final words. Uh, I thought it was pretty brilliant, and I loved it, and I liked it more. I haven't seen uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin since it came out. Yes. I remember having a, a bit of a shonky time during it. I, I, I need to see that film again, but mm. I think, on reflection, I would pref- probably end up preferring this one still. Oh, I um, think for me, without a doubt. Uh, it's, I, I appreciate that it's a little more... 
in a way friendly to watch or like mm. it feels like it wants you to have a better time mm. than we want we need to talk about Kevin did mm. is that fair to say no I think kind um, of I would argue the you know um, I would argue almost kind of like the opposite really that kind of to me uh, uh, we need to talk about Kevin offers uh, more traditional pleasures you okay know? The pleasure of the character, the tone, the yeah, kind of you know, it felt um, felt less experimental than this one did to me, you know. But I like this one much better. Actually, that's an interesting thing because yeah, like when you think about it, this film is is probably for for a lot of people pretty hard going mm. to watch. I mean, you at points were kind of going oh when like mm. he pulls his tooth and mm. or, and he shoots himself at the end mm. in that vision. Um, and it's not to say that like I'm inured to that or I love that sort of stuff, but I just kind of I didn't feel that like that was some of the exciting stuff to me. And um, thinking back to like Mother as well, Mother is a film that people absolutely hated for the kind of visual madness mm. and and the madness of the story and kind of just what you were expected to believe was happening. And and again, I love that. I love that as well. So, yeah, you know, maybe. Maybe that's just my taste. Well, it clearly is. Clearly it's a taste thing. But aside from your taste, there are also, I would argue, you know, levels of discernment, really. And I do think there's a difference. If you're, if you, and I mean, this is a very traditional argument. Yeah. But it, to me, there is a big difference between approaching art and approaching kind of entertainment. There just is. You know, if you go with the idea that somehow the film has to please you, Right, then it's no surprise that something like Mother doesn't because it assaults you, right? Yeah. You know, but if you go in with the idea that you're open to having an aesthetic experience, you know, can, can put, you in, put yourself in the hand of these artists, right? You know, then kind of you go with whatever they offer you. And, and actually, shock and revulsion, you know, is probably a good thing, which I think is yeah. partly, you know, what Mother offered. That's, but that's not true. a fault. <laughs> I, I think the other thing it reminded me of was Happy End, which we both came out of yes. uh, Michael Haneke's Happy End thinking we were surprised at what a good time we'd had during it. It's not yes. something you expect from Michael Haneke. Yes. And it made me think about that in this because obviously, actually when you think about it, like this is a film about child abuse and about revenge and violence you should be having a pretty rough time during yes. this. Um, and I wasn't at all. Uh, uh, <laughs> so, uh, Okay, good. Uh, anyway, we I think we both recommend that people go oh, see yeah. it. Oh, yeah. And I, I, we'll, we'll probably be seeing it again. Um, a quick word, perhaps, on the Oscars, because we haven't spoken about them. We, we both stayed up. We, I came around here to watch them with you. Oh, right, okay. So, and, we, uh, and then we, we didn't have the energy to talk about them. No, no, no. Actually. Well, you, no, were I, falling, you were falling asleep. I was falling asleep. Um... um so uh, you're happy with uh, Shape of Water winning Best Picture? I, think. I am. Uh, um, I mean, you know, it's not my favorite film of the year, um, but you know, I think my favorite film of last year wasn't even nominated, really. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're, both, so, we're both still in agreement with the Blade Runner. Yeah, I think uh, my uh, Blade Runner is my my film of the year. Um, so I kind of. I don't know. I mean, I you know, I have a whole history and nostalgia about the Oscars because I always associate them with being like a teenager and a young adult in Canada. And it was always an occasion for a party. And really kind of, you know, part of the value is political, you know, and national. And there were so many things. I mean, you know, I remember kind of when the first openly gay person kind of acknowledged his partner and, you know, and we all cried watching it. It was very moving, right? So I don't think the Oscars have, has that function anymore, really. You know, um, no, people aren't invested in it in the, in the way that they were because there's so many other things in media and, and so on going on. You know, on the other hand, it's not without significance, right? I kind of, and people have already been talking about some of uh, the strands of significance in the Oscars. For example, you know, Guillermo del Toro winning an achievement not only as a Mexican, right, but also, the, you know, his uh, um, history with Iñárritu and um, what's the other one? Um, the guy who directed... Uh, um, Cuaron? Cuaron, yeah. Isn't he Spanish, Cuaron? Is he no, Mexican? no, the Mexican. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, so like the three amigos huh. is the Rochasses. Well, I was going to say people don't make an awful lot about him being Mexican, but that seems to forget that Inuritu's won it twice in recent years. Yeah, yeah, no, they haven't forgotten. I mean, there's a whole narrative about right. that, you know, about Guillermo del Toro saying, well, you know, kind of, uh, you know, 
I don't want it. And I said, well, the chances of two Mexicans winning <laughs> it, you know, I'll, yeah, yeah I'll, there's less of a chance for me getting it. Right. You know, then Iñárritu got it. And then, oh my God, then that's infinitesimal with my chance of getting it. And then Iñárritu got it twice. And then it was like, I'll never get it. <laughs> right? like, uh, and then he got it. Yeah. So anyway, you know, there's a narrative around that. You know, there's a narrative around Coco. Uh, um, you know, there, there was a narrative uh, uh, around uh, uh, Francis McDormand winning. That's been quite a big deal. I mean, yeah. At least that's what I've been more aware of is Francis McDormand in the conversation around here. Because what you say about what you say about there being kind of much more media these days than there was, and so it's kind of less important. I think there's also an element of truth to that in that there's the 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 media landscape is not as compressed as it used to be. You know, it used to be that you had two or three channels. And, yeah. and newspapers and all that, you know. So it, it kind of what was said on one particular form of media was defining. You know, mm. it was kind of shaped the conversation for everybody. Whereas now there's this Twitter and this all sorts of social media and loads of websites and blah blah blah. But but even though that's all become very spread out, they're still all talking about a few things. Yes. And one of them was Francis McDormand's speech, which everybody took notice of. That's right. So I think the film still. You know, people have been like uh, putting too much weight on it as some kind of marker of you know a film's um, quality, which I suppose in a way it always is. You know, but serious critics have never taken the Oscars mm. as any barometer of a film's quality. I mean, it's always a barometer of what the Hollywood community likes that year and what you know it thinks reflects them, right? Because it's like the whole Academy votes on it. Right. Um, so I think the nominations mean one thing. The winners mean something else. It all tells us a lot about American culture. Right. Um, but, you know, as a barometer of quality, it's only in, in so far as that what this particular group of people, for many reasons, many of which are political, you know, want to give the award to something. And actually, very few of the films that win Academy Awards are actually the films that last. Mm. Well, one thing I think is, is that is true about the Oscars, which I think people don't tend to think about that much, is they they show the people who have the money mm. that there is more to making movies than money. Well, <laughs> I think that's really true. Like it says, you know, there is there is even though you may not, even though there may be kind of political things going on behind the scenes as to what you want to vote for and what you don't want to vote for, and what you want to recognise for whatever reasons. Um, there is artistic and cultural value to these things, and that's the business that you're in. I mean, one of the things that I was shocked by, or shocked is too strong a word, that surprised me, is I, I circulated on Facebook. There was this dossier, you know, that came out of, like, the Oscar-nominated films and what their budgets were and their release patterns, and, you know, it was a workflow. That's what it was. Right. It was a workflow of Oscar-nominated films. And actually, what surprised me is how low budget almost all of the Oscar-nominated films, except for Dunkirk, was it? Yeah, Dunkirk was uh, 100 million or so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Call Me By Your Name was just a few million. Mm. I was surprised to see that something as fantastical and with that look and those effects and so on, as Shape of Water, it only cost 19 million. And actually, the budget for Phantom Thread was twice the budget for, you know, uh, mm. um, uh, The Shape of Water. Uh, so that, you know, it's... and But in any case, none of those... All of those films that seem so so rich and so on, you know, 10 years ago, these would have been really low-budget films. I mean, if you think that, you know, any Hollywood film 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, starring Mel Gibson, Julia Roberts, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise... The shape, the budget of The Shape of Water would have been only part of their salary. Oh, sure, yeah. You know. Well, that's, so, I mean, that's, that's only part of it. I was going to say with Shape of Water, like, the biggest star in that is either Sally Hawkins or Rich Jenkins, which mm. is not a huge star either way. Yes. Um, so that, that money has gone on uh, set, set design and um, yeah. effects and so on. Yeah, the money's um, on screen. The money's absolutely on screen. And, um, um with something like Phantom Thread, like this, this, there's probably a little bit more money going to the, to the stars, but not very much. Again, that, I think that's um, that's money that's gone into uh, production primarily. And I yeah. think, you, and I think you may well argue actually you can see kind of less of it on screen than you can with Shape of Water, but but there's a kind of sumptuousness in the production of that film. Yes, particularly shooting on film. Yes. Um, but for a Hollywood film, you know, something like Phantom Thread would have been considered like a median budget film, mm. 
you know, because it does have a star. Um, you know, but then all the others, are, I was, it's very low budget. I mean, you know, I, I was surprised. So in a way, the good thing about the Oscars is that it gives, you know, an airing to these films that cost a tenth. The Shape of Water cost a tenth of, you know, what a Marvel film costs, right? Mm. Yeah, like 20 million as opposed to 200 million. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that gets, gets, yeah. uh, that's a, in itself a, a, a good thing. Uh, you know, and hopefully kind of it, it'll give it a, a, a platform so that more people across the world can see it than they otherwise would have. And that applies to, I think, all the nominees, which is why I personally think it's a good thing to nominate 10 films instead of five. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, anyway, anything you want to say? Because I feel I've hogged this part about, of the No, no, I don't mind. Um, I would say I was really, really pleased that Get Out won for a screenplay. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, loads have been made of kind of whether that's a, a political thing or not. It, it doesn't matter. Like, it fucking deserved it. And it was really great to see Jordan Peele up on stage receiving that award. Like, I mean, it's... One of the things that I suppose it kind of goes slightly in hand with what you're saying about um, about the budgets of, of films. I actually would you would expect kind of films on the lower end in their budgets a lot of the time to be up for the big awards because they tend to be the films that like a Marvel film, a two hundred million dollar Marvel film is kind of it had it has the edges shaved off, you know, like yes. and it's it's not going to be a film that's kind of well. You, you, well, up until Black Panther, <laughs> it's not going to be a film that's kind of pushing any envelopes, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it tends to be the films which are lower budget and lower risk for that reason that are doing yes. that and therefore are getting the kind of awards attention. Um, but that kind of slightly seems to go hand in hand with a sort of um, divisiveness sometimes, kind of not necessarily being there to please an audience and something like Get Out. I mean, it's a horror movie, basically. And we were saying, we were talking to each other, we were saying the last horror movie that was up for big awards and actually won any was Science of the Lambs, right? Yes. Which is 1991. Yes. Um, so, so Get Out is a kind of a, a really in-your-face horror movie and it, it's great that it's sort of amongst the crowd that was, I mean, it was amazing getting nominated that, and winning. It was amazing that it was nominated at all, kind of. You know, if you look at, like, a history of the Academy Awards... You know, I mean, a tiny budget, because, you know, I think if we're talking about a small budget for The Shape of Water, this was like tiny, it was five or six million, I, mean, I forget out, right? So for, for, for a, you know, a tiny budgeted horror film with no stars to have been nominated for an Academy Award at all, that would have been thinkable, unthinkable a generation ago. I mean, if we're talking about Silence of the Lambs, that had Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins when, you know, Jodie Foster was at her peak. I think she just won the Academy Award and this was her second one, right? Yeah. So that was, you know, that was a relatively decent budget Hollywood film with big stars. Uh, you know, kind of Get Out is incomparable. Get, Get Out is like as if Halloween had been nominated for an Oscar or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right, good. Let's end it here. Yes.